On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I wanted to go to this section of Scripture this morning because it's good every few years, every three, four years or so to uh, come to 1 Corinthians 11 and and, uh, and go through this passage on the Lord's Supper so that we understand the, the what and the how and the why of all of this. Uh, and so this morning, since uh, this is the first Sunday of the month that we're having communion, I wanted to take this opportunity to do just that. Because you never know from what background someone has come from. And this is especially important for those who perhaps were raised uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and uh, because Roman Catholicism has a completely different understanding of the issue of uh, communion of the Lord's table. And so this is a very important teaching for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 23 uh, through verse 32. Beginning now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The church at Corinth, as you are well aware, uh, was a church full of problems. There were cliques, you know, factions within the church, there was a, and there was division because of it. They were tolerating sexual immorality in the church, specifically an incestuous relationship. A man was sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, They were suing one another, you know, taking each other to court rather than settling the issues between themselves. Uh, There were also problems in their public worship. They were abusing the gifts of the Spirit, and they were also abusing the Lord's Supper, which is what Paul deals with in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that is the context of the verses we're looking at this morning. Paul is writing to correct the abuses and to give them instruction as to how and why they were to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
in the early church, before they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was their custom for the church to gather together for what was called an agape feast or a love feast. And basically, it was a potluck type of meal where all those who were able uh, brought food and wine to share with everyone else. Then they they would all sit down and and enjoy the meal together. And it was just a, a wonderful opportunity for fellowship and for demonstrating love for one another by sharing with those who were less privileged. And, and the church was strengthened and encouraged by this. And as the people got to know one another better, they could truly bear one another's burdens and be made aware of various needs for ministry. It also was a demonstration to the world of how the love of Christ transcended social and and racial distinctions and brought together as one body people from diverse backgrounds and all walks of life. Really, it was a a living illustration of the unity and the oneness of the body of Christ. And it was just a, a perfect prelude to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. At least that's what it was supposed to be. But at Corinth, what should have been this wonderful time of fellowship in Christ had deteriorated into something that was fracturing the church and and hurting the witness of the congregation. Apparently, the the more affluent in the congregation uh, who brought brought all this delicious food and wine, well, Uh, apparently they were arriving a little earlier and rather than waiting for the other members who had to work all day, uh, they went ahead and ate and ate the food they brought and drank too much wine. So by the time that the poorer members of the church arrived who didn't have much to contribute, the dishes on the serving table were empty as well were the containers holding the wine. And so the poorer members who needed a good meal went hungry while others sat around with their belts unbuckled, intoxicated, ready for a nap. I mean, a sort of of spiritual snobbery was being practiced based on financial status. And so what was to be a time of fellowship and sharing had really turned into a a gluttonous, drunken feast that, that resembled the pagan feast that they used to participate in. And the whole thing was obviously wrong. I mean, especially because they they went straight from this so-called love feast then to celebrate communion. And to follow this lack of regard for one another, this abuse of Christian love and unity with the celebration of communion, well, that that was to mock the celebration. And that was to mock the Lord's table. In fact, what they had turned the love feast into was so offensive to God that he disciplined some of the Corinthians with sickness and even death. I mean, their selfishness and their divisiveness were totally opposite of the grace and unity made available through the cross and the impartiality of God's love. I mean, there was no love in their love feast, and there was sin at the Lord's Supper. And so in this last part of chapter 11, Paul is seeking to correct the Corinthians' abuses of the love feast and the communion service. And and he does three things to correct this problem. Number one, in verses 17 to 22, he gives them some constructive criticism. In verses 23 to 26, he gives them some uh, corrective instruction. And And then thirdly, in verses 27 to 32, he gives them a sober warning. 
And we're going to give most of our attention this morning to verses 23 to 32, focusing mostly on verses 23 to 26, because it's here that we learn what coming together to celebrate communion is all about. But before we get into the text, let's just take a moment and, and, and speak about what communion is. The Lord Jesus left two ordinances for the church to practice until he returns. One is water baptism, and second is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, or communion, it's called, uh, is when we as God's people gather together in obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus to celebrate his substitutionary atoning death and, and the salvation it provides for all who by grace through faith trust in him alone. And so we could say the communion service is one of obedience to our Lord. You know, it's one of remembering him, worshiping him, and fellowshipping with him and, and with his people, with one another. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, certain symbolic elements are used. You know, bread, a, a wafer, uh, some use a cracker, which these symbolize Jesus' body given in death upon the cross, and then wine, or for us, grape juice, which symbolizes his blood shed for our sins. And when we take these symbolic elements and, and eat them in the communion service, it represents our personal participation in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So that's basically what communion is. And, and how did the, communion, the celebration of communion even come about? Well, it was Jesus himself who instituted the Lord's Supper. And as most of you are aware, on the night before uh, he was to die on the cross, our Lord met with his disciples in the upper room to eat the Passover meal. And the timing of this was not at all an accident, but rather it was an essential part of God's eternal plan. And I say that because you'll remember that throughout the Gospels, Jesus was always telling his disciples that his time had not yet come. And of course, he was referring to the time when he would die for the sins of the world. And so throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament, he's always telling them, oh, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. You see, it wasn't mere circumstances that set the time Christ would die, but God himself. And the time that God had set in eternity past was to be at the Passover feast. And the reason for this is clearly expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7, where he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Paul is saying there that that the Old Testament event of the Passover, when God spared his people from judgment and delivered them from bondage in Egypt, was a God-given picture of the meaning of the death of Christ. And at the first Passover, a lamb which had to be without any blemish or defect was sacrificed in every Jewish home, and its blood then, then sprinkled on the doorpost and the lintel of those homes. And when the Lord passed through Egypt that night in judgment, killing all the firstborn in the land, he passed over those houses where he saw the blood of the lamb, and, and their children alone were spared. In effect, the lamb had died as a substitute for the Jewish firstborn. And of course, in the same way, Jesus is the lamb of God who shed his blood and died to deliver us from God's death penalty upon sin. And so the first celebration of the Lord's Supper took place during the Passover meal. Now, tradition calls it the Last Supper 
but in reality, it was the first. And at the table during that first Lord's Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, this was so important to the Lord Jesus. I mean, he was, he was earnestly desiring to do this, looking forward to doing this. And during the Passover meal, the people would eat from three cakes of unleavened bread and they would drink from four cups of wine. And Jesus used these things, which were well known to his disciples, as symbols of the meaning of his impending death. Now, the institution of the Lord's Supper is actually recorded in Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30, Mark 14, uh, verses 12 to 26, and Luke 22, 7 to 23. But the fullest account is given by the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls it the Lord's Supper. But this is not the only term used in the New Testament to describe it. It's called the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's referred to as the table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10.21, or if you're reading the New King James, the Lord's table. And in some translations, it is called communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16. So we can use any of these names and be perfectly biblical. Now, later in church history, it was called the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. But this word has been adopted by those churches which wrongly teach that the bread and wine in some way become the actual body and blood of Christ. And so the Eucharist is a term that most evangelicals will avoid using. You say, well, what's the significance of the different names? Well, number one, the term the Lord's table speaks of of grace. It speaks of God's free and abundant giving. It speaks of God's hospitality toward undeserving sinners. And and really, it's the same picture given to us in the parable of the Great Supper in Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24, where it was the poor, the maimed, the, the lame and the blind who sat down to the Great Supper prepared by the Master. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ, because he did not come to call the righteous, but rather sinners to repentance. And what a feast of love and mercy he provides for those who have put their faith and trust in him alone for salvation. And so the term the Lord's table speaks to us of the superabundance of God's provision in Christ for undeserving sinners such as you and I. Secondly, the terms Lord's Supper and communion have a slightly different meaning, but suffice it to say that they both relate to fellowship and and intimacy with Christ. The Lord's Supper is an occasion when we ought to enjoy a special closeness to our Lord. I mean, if you remember, it was to the lukewarm church at Laodicea that Jesus extended his invitation. There in Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's not an evangelistic verse. He's speaking to the church, a lukewarm church, and he's inviting them to to once again enjoy that that special closeness. And so the emphasis uh, is on fellowship with Christ that that the people of Laodicea were missing because of the coldness of their hearts and, and their spiritual lukewarmness. And the Lord's Supper is, is an opportunity for us 
to restore our communion with, with the Lord and, and to renew the warm intimacy with him that ought to characterize a believer's daily life. And the picture of dining together with Jesus should also remind us that the Lord's Supper is, is not merely a ritual that we just uh, go through you know, by rote without giving it much thought. It should be a time when we linger with the Lord, you know, enjoying his gracious provision for our spiritual needs. And then finally, the term breaking bread, and, and it's found in Acts 2.42, is a descriptive title with a double meaning. It refers directly to Jesus' death upon the cross where his body was, in one sense, broken for our redemption. But it also reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. The, the bread of God, John said, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the Lord Jesus is the source of all spiritual life and sustenance. You know, as Peter said to Jesus in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so the Lord's Supper reminds us of the fact that we are utterly dependent upon Christ for salvation, preservation, and for blessing in this life and and glory in the next. And so having said that, let's actually now get into the text. Look at verse 23, if you will. And Paul begins here to give instruction. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And so Paul is making it clear that what he is teaching on the Lord's Supper isn't merely his own opinion. This isn't something he just came up with on his own. Uh, These aren't his own thoughts. Rather, he is passing on to them instruction that is far more authoritative than any man's opinion. I mean, like the gospel... What Paul had to say about the Lord's Supper had come to him by direct revelation from the risen Lord himself. Because Paul wasn't at the Last Supper, and he had never been told what what went on in the upper room by any of the other apostles. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, Because in Galatians 1, Paul says that he did not learn what he knew of Christ, Christianity, and, and the gospel from any man. No apostle taught it to him. Rather, he said, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And neither did Paul read about the Last Supper in one of the four Gospels, because most conservative scholars absolutely agree that 1 Corinthians uh, was written before any of the Gospels. So what we have here is the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. I mean, the communion service is so important to the Lord Jesus that Christ himself instructed Paul as to how it was to be celebrated. And Paul says there in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. On the night when he was betrayed. That that gives us the, the historical setting, which many of the believers may not have known, because as I just said, the Gospels had not yet been written. And so it was against the the black backdrop of his betrayal by Judas that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And this reference to Christ's betrayal by Paul to the Corinthians was no accident. I mean, Paul was was seeking to make a point. And he seems to imply that what was happening during the Lord's Supper at Corinth was also a a betrayal of sorts, a, a betrayal of the love and humility that so characterized the Lord Jesus. 
And so, too, we, we, we need to be aware of coming to take communion with attitudes that betray Christ. You know, as we contemplate the love of God and, and Christ dying for our sins on the cross, we need to get rid of, of any spirit of superiority or criticism of others, unkindness, harshness, backbiting, jealousy, and all the other sins of attitude which so plague the human heart. Because there is no place for such things at the cross. And next Paul tells us about the attitude which was uppermost in the mind of Jesus himself as he instituted that first Lord's Supper. Look back at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, now verse 24, and when he had given thanks. And when he had given thanks. He gave thanks. And his thanksgiving was not for for the bread as a source of nourishment for his physical body, but for the bread as a symbol of the atoning sacrifice that would take place the following day. And at the moment when really all the powers of hell were gathering against him, as as he faced the agonies of the Garden of Gethsemane and then the cross itself, the Lord Jesus gave thanks. He gave thanks. There was no rebellion against the will of God. No complaining about the suffering that he would endure. Only thankfulness to the Father for his great mercy and grace toward undeserving sinners. I mean, the Lord gave thanks for his own impending suffering and death. But as the writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The Lord's attitude was one of thanks. And by this, he set an example for believers to follow as we celebrate communion. I mean, our attitude should also be one of praise and thanksgiving to God the Father, who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten Son to die for us, and to Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, shedding his blood in order to save us from the penalty of our own sin. I mean, there's no place for pride at the Lord's table. Only grateful, thankful hearts. Only the, the grateful thanks of, of sinners who deserved nothing but received everything by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord J- Jesus gave thanks, and, and we should too. And look back at the verses where we see now the elements used in the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When Jesus took the bread and the wine and said, this is my body, you know, this is my blood, he obviously was not speaking literally. He wasn't speaking literally. And I say that because the Roman Catholic Church takes this literally. And last, last time we took communion, I actually made reference to uh, the Roman Catholic teaching on this, and, and someone took offense. 
And so I just want to just clarify what the Roman Catholic Church believes. Uh, They believe in what is called transubstantiation. That's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines this doctrine in section 1376. Uh, You can look it up for yourself. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that once an ordained priest, an ordained Catholic priest, blesses the bread of the Lord's Supper, it is transformed into the actual flesh of Christ, though it retains the appearance, odor, and taste of bread. And when he blesses the wine, they believe that it is transformed into the actual blood of Christ, though it retains the appearance, odor, and taste of wine. And there are a number of verses that they will go to to try to prove this. Uh, But the the passage pointed to most frequently by the Roman Catholics is in John chapter 6, verses 32 to 58, but especially verses 53 to 57. And this is what we read in John 6, verse 53 to 57. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And the Roman Catholics interpret this passage literally and apply its message to the Lord's Supper, which they title the Eucharist, or or the Mass. But those who reject the idea of transubstantiation, which are all Protestants, uh, they interpret Jesus' words in John 6, 53-57, figuratively or symbolically. You say, well, how do we know which interpretation is correct? Well, for a number of reasons, let me just, we don't have time to to get into this, but let me just mention them. First of all, it cannot mean literal flesh and blood for the very simple reason that God strictly forbid Jews to consume blood. It was forbidden. And that was absolutely forbidden in the law of God. And Jesus is not going to break the law of God by commanding someone to, to drink his blood. Secondly, the context of John chapter 6. The context of John chapter 6 is salvation, not the Lord's Supper. When he was speaking in John 6, he had not, Jesus had not yet instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. So he was not referring to the Lord's Supper, uh, which he would not have done because he was speaking to unbelievers about salvation, and the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers, it is only for believers. And then thirdly, Jesus himself made it exceedingly obvious uh, what he meant. In John six sixty three. Jesus declared, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus specifically stated that his words are spirit. Our Lord was using the physical concept of eating and drinking to teach spiritual truth. And his point in John 6 was just as consuming physical food and drink sustains our physical body. So are our spiritual lives saved and built up by spiritually receiving him by grace through faith. 
Eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood are symbols uh, of fully and completely receiving Christ in our lives by salvation. In John 6, Jesus was not commanding people to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. He is telling them the core of all Christian doctrine, that salvation can only be found by believing in him and in him alone. And the most serious reason transubstantiation should be rejected is that it is viewed by the Roman Catholic Church as a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, or a re-offering, or a re-presentation of his sacrifice. You can look it up in the Roman Catholic Catechism. That's exactly what they'll tell you. This, loved ones, is a direct contradiction of Scripture. It is a direct contradiction of what Scripture says Scripture says Jesus died once for all. He does not need to be sacrificed again and again and again and again, which is what they believe takes place in the Mass. Hebrews 7.27 declares, speaking of Jesus, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so transubstantiation is a heretical teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and, and it's a damning heresy. When Jesus took the bread and the wine and, and said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was not speaking literally. He meant these things are symbolic of what I'm going to do by my death on the cross. And he meant from that point on, That these elements should be a symbol and memorial of his body killed and in that sense broken on the cross and of his blood shed for the redemption of our sins. The symbolic elements of bread and wine like those of the Passover feast are intended to help us remember the very act that purchased our salvation. Our Lord's death was a sacrificial death to make atonement for man's sin. His body was broken in death so that his blood could be shed. His life was sacrificed and offered as a ransom for our souls. As Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it is Jesus' use of the word cup in verse 25 here in 1 Corinthians 11 that I want to draw your attention to. Because his use of the word cup is very significant. You know, did he mean the cup as something merely to contain the wine? Or was he alluding to the symbolic meaning of the word cup in Scripture? Well, he certainly used the word symbolically a few hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it was the thought of of drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin that caused Jesus uh, the crushing sorrow recorded in the Garden of Gethsemane there in in, in, uh, verse 38 of Matthew 26. You know, when Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. You know, the sorrow wasn't caused by the the mere thought of death because death was not the problem for Jesus that it is for us. I mean, he knew that death would restore him to the glory that he had with the Father before creation. 
Jesus' sorrow was caused by what was involved in his death, and that is what the word cup refers to in his prayer in Gethsemane. And drinking the cup is a phrase in the Old Testament that refers predominantly to God's punishment of human sin. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because the sword that I am sending among them. And so drinking the cup refers primarily to God's punishment of human sin. And you see, the Lord Jesus had always known that one day this cup of God's wrath for human sin was going to be put into his hands. And on the night before his crucifixion, there at the Last Supper, Jesus felt the terrible implications and the consequences of it. He would be made sin for us as God laid our sin and guilt upon him. And God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in that process of atonement, he would be in in some way that we cannot even begin to comprehend, separated from and forsaken by his Father. And the Lord Jesus endured the consequences of sin to the utmost extent. As one man said, so fully did he make himself one with sinful man, that he entered into the dreadful state of being forsaken by God that is the lot of unforgiven sinners. He died our death so that we might live to God. And if all of this was in the mind of Jesus when he spoke of the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, it would be absolutely surprising if it was not also in his mind in the upper room as he spoke of his blood that would be shed upon the cross. And the point is simply that the cup in the communion service should therefore remind us of the enormous cost that our salvation was to the Lord. Yes, salvation is given to us as a a free gift of God's grace, but it costs Christ everything. the, the, The cup is symbolic of the fact that Christ will be made sin for us as God laid on him all our sin and guilt. He he died the death that we deserve so that we might live to God. But by the same token, it also reminds us of the riches of his grace and how blessed all those who trust in his atoning sacrifice truly are. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so the bread and the wine are symbolic of what the Lord Jesus did by his death on the cross. His life was sacrificed and and offered as a ransom for our souls. And this cup, if you look back at 1 Corinthians 11.25, this cup, the Lord Jesus said, is the new covenant in my blood. It is a covenant made in his blood. In other words, it's a covenant put into effect by his atoning death. I mean, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but the precious blood of Christ certainly can. I mean, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19, 
you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. On the cross, the new covenant promised by God in Jeremiah 600 years earlier, and even before that to Noah and Abraham, is ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, in the same way that, that a signature with ink confirms or validates a contract or a promise today, Jesus signed on the dotted line of the new covenant, so to speak, with his shed blood represented by the communion cup. And the new covenant or new agreement between God and man was ratified once and for all by Jesus' blood or his atoning sacrifice. And so the cup we take at the communion service is the symbol of both the blood of Christ and the covenant made in that blood. And it is a sign to us of the grace of God and the guarantee of our salvation. And the cross is now central in all of God's dealings with man. It it transforms everything. I mean, this is why the Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The bread, the wine, the cup, and the covenant, they all remind us that God became a man and died a substitutionary atoning death that man might be reconciled to God. And so the primary purpose then of of the Lord's Supper is to remind Christians of the Lord Jesus' death for sinners. I mean, in verse 24, after taking the bread, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And then after taking the cup of wine, he said in verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You know, do this in remembrance of me. But, but, if we have never made peace with God, if we've never made peace with God, the peace that was made for sinners through his blood shed on the cross, in other words, if we have never come to faith in Christ, then we have nothing to remember. Because we cannot remember what we have never experienced. But for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, at the communion service we are called upon by the Lord to remember what happened nearly 2,000 years ago. And so how can we do this in a meaningful way? You know, how can we remember without it becoming nothing more than a formal ceremony, something that we, you know, go through the first Sunday of every month, maybe perhaps even tolerate at the end of the service when we're in a hurry to get out? You know, how can we do this in a meaningful way? How can we prevent the Lord's Supper from becoming merely a habit, a, an empty, meaningless ritual? In fact, something that some people don't even show up for. Well, the answer is to realize that we're not merely recalling a a historical event. I mean, certainly the death of Christ is that, but it's far more than that. For believers, the death of Christ is, is something that has become and remains a deeply personal experience. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we're remembering that the very Son of God loved us and He loved us enough that He came and He gave Himself for us. 
I mean, this is a reality that has profound meaning for us and, and it should have a powerful influence upon our daily lives. I mean, this is personal. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. For you. And the words for you obviously have a direct reference to the disciples who were present that night, but they're not limited to the disciples. And we know that because the Lord Jesus commanded communion to be observed regularly until he returns. And and by doing that, he, he was clearly expanding the application of it to all believers in every generation. Those words for you, it includes us. It includes you, it includes me. I mean, this is my body, Jesus said, which is for you. I mean, do we, do we realize, I mean, or do we even comprehend the depth of love in those words, this is my body, which is for you? Or have we heard it so many times it just rolls right off our back? For you. For you. And those must be the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. For you. The Lord Jesus is proclaiming that he was giving his life as the incarnate Son of God for you and and for me. I mean, all that he was, all that he did was for you and me. I mean, the death of Christ 2,000 years ago is not just a historical event. It involves us as believers directly and, and personally. The Lord Jesus said that by his death, he was doing something for us, which the bread and wine were reminders. On the cross, Christ took responsibility for our sin and guilt, and God laid on him all our violations of his holy law. And Jesus became a curse for us. And he did it so that we might be rescued from our sin and rebellion and the wrath to come and become the children of God. And so as one man said, as Christians, we are to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. In other words, the declaration made at Calvary of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ is to be remembered in such a way that it touches every facet of our lives. And so when we come to take communion, it's not only a past event that must fill our thoughts, but also a present experience of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the communion service will will never become a meaningless formality when our minds are focused upon the living Christ. And we remember what he accomplished for us upon the cross. The Lord's Supper is remembrance, and, and we're to practice it until Jesus comes again. Look at verse 26, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so, you know, every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are in fact preaching the great truths of the gospel. We are proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death. 
We are proclaiming to our fellow believers that our trust is in Christ alone. We are proclaiming to the powers of darkness that Jesus Christ has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. And every time we come together and take communion, we are reminding ourselves and the world that the death of Christ was an event that really happened, and it changed the entire course of human history. And the Lord's Supper also declares to the world that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And by it, we also proclaim the effect that Christ's death has had on us personally. You see, the communion service is not just a ceremony or a ritual of the church. No, it's a glorious declaration that because Jesus died for us, We are now new creations in Christ, united to him by the power of his love and and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And how long are we to continue this wordless proclamation of the gospel? Well, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until the Lord Jesus comes. Until he returns in power and glory. One man said, we do not remember <clears throat> excuse me, what Christ has done for us simply as an exercise in nostalgia, nor only as a testimony to the present benefits of the gospel. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a declaration that Christ will come again. And thus the communion service, he continued, embraces the whole panorama of the Christian faith, past, present, and future. The Lord's Supper is a a constant witness to the truth about Christ's return. And so that that means that it's a service of of confidence and and hope. When we celebrate communion, we should be anticipating the Lord's return. In fact, we should be anticipating the Lord's return each and every day. But especially at the communion service. We should be thinking about the day when we are actually going to see the Lord Jesus face to face. That day when, when faith becomes sight. I mean, the victory that Christ won for us at the cross is going to have its glorious fulfillment at the second coming. And so as Paul said to Titus, we're to be waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the the return of Christ is the blessed hope of the church and of the individual believer. And when we take communion, our hearts and minds should be filled with the joy of the blessed hope, the the certainty that Christ is coming to take us home to be with him in heaven forever. And, And that, loved ones, is the ultimate end of our salvation. And we can be assured of this, that he who began a good work in each one of us is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus returns, there'll be no need to remember then because we're going to be with him forever. There'll be no need then to look forward because he will be with us and we will see him and and we will be like him. And we will go on for all of eternity proclaiming the praise of the Lamb upon his throne. At the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Christ, proclaiming his death, and looking forward to his return. What a great and glorious privilege it is to celebrate communion. What a a tremendous blessing. 
but it's also a great privilege that can be abused. At Corinth, this privilege is being greatly abused. And that is why Paul now goes on to warn the Corinthians. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I want you to notice something. Paul does not say a person must be worthy to partake, does he? Because if he did, that would exclude all of us. It would exclude all Christians because all Christians continue to sin. But of course, many Christians feel unworthy when they come to the Lord's table. And the fact of the matter is, we all are unworthy to partake of communion in the sense that we are unworthy of the least of the Lord's mercy or kindness. But our worthiness is not the issue. Because when we've been born again and cleansed from all our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, we then can come to God as our Father in all the worthiness of Jesus Christ, His Son. Right? God sees us as perfectly holy and perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. And so we can approach the very throne of God uh, in the worthiness of Christ. So Paul is not speaking here about personal unworthiness. Rather, he is speaking about personal conduct. He is speaking about coming to take communion in an unworthy manner. And there are many ways that a believer can come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And the Corinthians uh, were coming to the table with flippant, selfish, divisive attitudes and conduct. And there was drunkenness and gluttony involved. That's coming in an unworthy manner. We come in an unworthy manner if we're not thinking of the Savior and His work, but are simply participating ritualistically. And so it's no more to you than a ritual. And so your mind and, and heart aren't really in it. You're just going through the emotions, or going through the motions with no emotion. And you take it rightly rather than seriously, or lightly rather than seriously. And again, that's why some people don't even show up for communion. They think of it lightly. They don't take it seriously. They don't see it in the same light that God sees it in. We come in an unworthy manner by believing that communion, that the ceremony itself, uh, and not the sacrifice that it, it symbolizes, can somehow save or keep one saved. There's no salvation in, in taking communion, just like there's no salvation in being baptized. We come in an unworthy manner if we come with sinful attitudes such as anger, bitterness, or, or hatred in our hearts towards someone. You know, we come in an unworthy manner if we come with unconfessed sin in our lives, sin of which we will not repent. And don't only think of sins of commission, sins that you actually commit, but there are also sins of omission, not doing the things you know to do. You see, coming to the Lord's table is, is a serious matter. And our thoughts and attention should be riveted on the person and the work of Christ. When we come to take communion, one commentator wrote, if we come with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and anything less than total love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we come in an unworthy manner. And Paul says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, one commentator explained it this way. To trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country that it represents. By the same token, to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner doesn't simply dishonor the ceremony, though it does that. But more importantly, it dishonors the one in whose honor it is being celebrated. We become guilty of dishonoring his body and blood, which represent his total gracious life and work for us, his suffering and death on our behalf. You know, we become guilty of mocking and and treating with indifference the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we keep from coming in an unworthy manner? You know, how do we keep uh, from coming uh, so so that we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does he he mean to examine himself? Now, what does it mean to examine yourself? Well, it means to ask God to search our hearts. It means to ask God to uh, to search our hearts and to examine our lives, our motives, our attitudes toward him and other believers. It means pleading with the Lord as as David did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So it means to examine our hearts to discover if there's anything anything that shouldn't be there. It's bringing our lives under private scrutiny before the Lord, asking him, Lord, Is there anything in me that is unpleasing to you? Lord, search me, try me, know me. It means to handle your sin honestly. And don't try to cover it up. And how ridiculous to try to cover up your sin before God. Because we all stand naked and open before Him, right? So don't try to cover it up. Don't try to persuade yourself that it's not there or that it's no big thing. No, you need to admit it and bring it to God and and let him cleanse you. And pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the the ability to repent. Sin in our lives must be confessed. Maybe restitution needs to be made. Maybe there's an apology that should be offered to someone we've offended. You know, we need to make sure that we are, as one man said, in a proper state of soul when we come to take communion. And so the communion service is an opportunity for honest self-examination before the Lord, which means the communion service is You know, it's a special time for for the purifying of the church as we all, each one of us, examine our lives before the Lord and deal with our sin. And Paul then gives a warning of the consequences of participating in communion in an unworthy manner. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? 
The word judgment here has the meaning of chastening. It refers to the Lord's chastisement or his discipline of disobedient believers. See, the Lord disciplines his children. When a believer takes communion in an unworthy manner, you know, they're, they're not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, they're, they're treating the Lord, his life, his suffering and death with indifference, and they may bring God's discipline upon themselves. And God disciplines some of the Corinthian believers severely. Severely. You say, how severely? Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. In other words, because the Corinthians were taking communion in an unworthy manner, God disciplined them. Some of them with weakness, physical weakness. Some with physical illness. And some, he took their lives. They actually died. I mean, God took them home to heaven. They had rejected God's tender, loving warnings and discipline. They knowingly persisted in unrepentant sin while at the same time partaking of communion. And this is living a lie. And they continued uh, in this to the point that God said to some of them, look, you know, I can't trust you anymore down there, so I'm bringing you home. I mean, that's radical. It's about as radical as you can get. And it's certainly nothing to be taken lightly. And somebody might be thinking, well, I haven't seen anybody drop dead in the communion service lately. Well, I mean, I have, I've never seen that happen. But that doesn't mean uh, that God hasn't disciplined uh, believers in this way. Weakness, illness, death. And, you know, I don't know how long it takes before God does that. That's, that's God's business. But it's a fact. And Paul warns us about it, about it here. This is nothing to be taken lightly. And he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And so this involves being honest, discerning what we are. It involves confessing our sins, our sinful attitudes, actions, words, and motives. And of course, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which we thank him for. Wonderful promise of 1 John 1, nine. You know, if we exercise self-judgment, it won't be necessary for God to chasten us. Paul says in verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And if we come in an unworthy manner and we don't judge ourselves and God judges us, it's not for condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for the very opposite. Now, it is the Father's loving discipline for the purpose of bringing us back to him. It is to encourage us and others in the church to choose holiness rather than sin. You see, God loves us too much to allow us to go on in sin. I mean, to think that, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk about God loving us unconditionally, and certainly he does when he saves us, but he loves us far beyond that. Because unconditional love uh, allows someone just to remain how they are. That's not God's love for us. 
Well, God's love for us is far greater than that. It goes far beyond that. Because God is not willing to leave us the way that we are. Yeah, he saves us just like we are. But then the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we spend the rest of our lives in this process called sanctification as God is working to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. He never leaves us the way that we are. God loves us too much to allow us to go on in our sin. I mean, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you've not known the discipline of God, then Hebrews tells us you're not one of his. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. God's loving but firm discipline of his children distinguishes us from the unsaved world who will be condemned. But God isn't going to allow his own children to be condemned with the world. That's why he brings divine discipline. And so Paul is saying here that if we examine ourselves and confess our sin, coming before the Lord in a manner worthy of the occasion, remembering with love and adoration the supreme sacrifice that Jesus made for us, remembering the awfulness of his death under the wrath of God and the power of his life to raise us from our own spiritual death, we're not going to come in an unworthy manner. And we'll avoid the chastening hand of the Lord. We're not going to have to worry that God is going to discipline us like he did the Corinthians because they wouldn't examine themselves. And so in closing, let's remember that in the communion service, we remember. We remember, we proclaim, and we look forward. I mean, all of these things are centered on Christ. And we do them because we love him. We love him. And the communion service is an expression of this love. The communion service is a fellowship service in which we have fellowship with Christ and with one another. The Lord's Supper brings us together as sinners saved by grace. I mean, that that is the basis of our communion, and it's the only source of our fellowship. And we're to treasure it. You know, we're, we're to treasure and to cultivate our oneness in Christ because in doing so, we reveal and honor the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, loved ones, let's not take the Lord's Supper lightly because it is one of the most precious gifts that Christ has given to his church. And we are blessed to be able to partake of it together this morning. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love